Well, she's right. That is a really intimidating <laughs> intro for a speaker. Uh, so good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Gesho. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the senior students at the Village Zendao. Um, so I'm feeling really grateful to be here, to be here on retreat in person, and at the same time to have a connection to the larger Sangha who might be listening or watching. I'm grateful for the talks that we've had. Roshi, on our first day of session, pointing out that when we sit still, we can notice how we change moment to moment. One moment, we're a demon. One moment, we're a golden Buddha. One moment, we're an ordinary person. And Miyoko brought us a beautiful image from a poem by Ryokan of carrying bundles of firewood down a steep trail and stopping to rest under a pine tree. And then Muke pointing out the very simple and clear instructions for practice in our study text. I also really appreciated what Miyoko Roshi had to say about learning and the way this Sangha approaches the mistakes that are an inevitable part of learning new things, learning new roles and service positions. We allow a kind of gentle space for mistakes, but at the same time, we strive to get things right. And that effort itself is a key part of our practice. Shuso yesterday called that effort the wind in the sails of Seshin, which I thought was quite Wonderful. So I've been in a new position myself, and part of that has been training other people who are new to their positions. And what that means is that when I make a mistake, I often pass that mistake on to another person. And then we both experience a moment of consternation and frustration. We both have to change what we're doing to come closer to getting it right. So we're all in the practice of being patient with each other. And thank you, Jikidos, <laughs> for being patient with me. Another group that's had to be patient with me were those who were sitting Zazen during the middle of the evening on Wednesday night, the night before last, when I had my first real try at using the Kiyosaku. <laughs> the Kiyosaku is the traditional Zen wake-up stick sometimes called the encouragement stick. Ideally, the wielder gives you a sharp tap on each shoulder, which relieves tension and reinvigorates your sitting. I had been trained, and I had practiced a little on a willing human, but I had never formally offered Kiyosaku. And as it happens, I love receiving the Kiyosaku. In my early sessions, I had a lot of pain in sitting, and I privately called the Kiyosaku the endorphin stick. <laughs> With a good sharp whack, it seemed like all the other pain in my body vanished for a while. So picture me walking slowly around the zendo, offering this magical stick, but in reality, giving what turned out to be just weak little taps on the shoulder. <laughs> You can tell immediately when you get it right by the sound it makes, just like uh, when you hit a bell right. And I only heard that true sound a few times that night, two or three times. <laughs> 
One person who caught up with me later to let me know I could hit them much harder <laughs> described my hits as timid. <laughs> but it was so correct. I mean, it's just exactly right. So I hope those who were there for my very timid hits were forgiving and patient as I put my effort into getting it right. So personally speaking, I had a really hard winter, a winter and spring. I was continuously upset and nothing seemed right. I woke up with it in the morning, I went to bed with it. In retrospect, I think I was upset in two ways, or you could say suffering in two ways. The first was what Miyoko Roshi in her talk called collective suffering, what I sometimes call, a bit jokingly, Vimalakirti syndrome. <laughs> As many of you know, Vimalakirti was a layman bodhisattva who lived at the time of the Buddha. He famously fell ill, and when he was asked what was wrong, he said that he was ill with the suffering of the whole world and wouldn't be well again until all sentient beings were liberated. So I'm not saying I was any kind of bodhisattva, but I do often think of this story when I or people around me become in a sense ill from taking in so much of the suffering of the world what we often call doom scrolling. And there's been so much suffering to take in. And there's another aspect to this, which I've come to think of as the Tyrannosaurus Rex effect. We loom very large in our own minds, and yet we frequently feel helpless in the face of the suffering around us. Picture a giant T-Rex looking down at their tiny arms in dismay. <laughs> I felt just like that. The other kind of distress I was feeling was about my own life in a way that is familiar to me or characteristic of me. This is what Miyoko Roshi called our personal suffering or our baggage. I was losing a friend to illness and then death, and that was certainly part of it. And I was feeling a kind of disappointment which was very familiar. It's a kind of side effect of being naturally an optimist, actually. And, but instead of doing what I usually do, which is just to try to move on to a new thing to feel optimistic about, to feel hope again, this just repeats the cycle. Instead, I was trying something new, which was sitting with my disappointment in a really uncomfortable way. And the kind of disappointment I was feeling, I think, is just built into life because expectation and reality are never going to match up perfectly. This mismatch is one aspect of what the Buddha identified as dukkha or suffering. The root of the Sanskrit word dukkha as many of you probably know, is the image of a wheel and its axle. So imagine that the wheel with its hub and axle are carved of wood, as they would have been back then. If the place where the wheel meets the axle is poorly carved, then you get this kind of sad, galumphing offness every time the wheel turns. It doesn't glide along smoothly and beautifully. It hitches and catches and stutters. So if we think of our own expectations, 
we make plans and kind of imagine that our lives will just glide along smoothly. But the reality is, our lives never do. We experience illness, old age, death, the loss of people we love, the failure to get what we want or what we think we want. So sometime during the spring, the singer Leonard Cohen came into my mind. And I don't remember why, but certainly he was a person who suffered a great deal. And as most of you probably know, he was a serious Zen student for a time. For several years, he lived in a monastery on Mount Baldy in California. And if you're curious to know more about what that was like, there's a documentary on YouTube that shows him walking in his robes with his rakasu, eating orioki, acting as jisha for his roshi and carrying the roshi's luggage. So I'd seen this a while, a while back. But what popped into my mind was the question, why did Leonard Cohen leave Zen practice? So I turned to the internet, as we do, and it gave a quite succinct answer. So he was talking to Terry Gross on Fresh Air and described how he came to Zen because of his extreme suffering, depression, and despair. She asked him then why he left the monastery, and he said, I had the feeling that it wasn't doing any good. <laughs> and it wasn't really addressing this real problem of distress, which seemed to be the background of all my feelings and activities and thoughts. So I began to feel that this is a lot of work for very little return. <laughs> I found this a slightly terrifying answer. <laughs> but it called to mind a talk of Ryotan Roshi's that I had heard a while back. Ryotan began the talk by mentioning a question that was coming up frequently during interview with some of his advanced students. Students who had been practicing for many years, who had been to many sessions just like this one. And what these students were saying was, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't really get it. I feel like I'm missing something. And then Ryotan gave this very wonderful talk, which is much more subtle and deep than I could possibly convey. So I'm going to point you all to it. I really recommend it. It's called uh, Finding the True Teacher. And it's from, I think, April of 2021. So one thing that he talked about was that our discriminating mind, which is what we have to use all day, to function in the world, that mind wants to understand, to grasp something. It says, I want to get it. But of course, there's nothing to get or to grasp or to hold or to keep. And it can feel like our hands are empty because in some sense, they are. So Ryotan addressed one part of the sentence that he was hearing. I don't really get it. I feel like I'm missing something. He pointed to the problem of getting, grasping, and having. And I want to think for a moment about another part of the sentence, which is the I. I don't get it. I feel like I'm missing something. And it seems to me that one aspect of suffering or dukkha or distress or not getting it is a fundamental misunderstanding that we all have about what I 
is, what the self is. We all grow up in a world where the conventional understanding of a self is that it begins and ends with the boundary of the skin. The self is inside the skin and the rest of the world is outside. And we're not entirely crazy for thinking that way. In fact, it's probably one of the definitions of sanity in our culture that you understand the difference between inside and outside and self and other. But this idea of the self is a concept. And like any concept or word, it captures or points to some aspects of reality and leaves others out. There's a mismatch between concept or expectation and reality. A dukkha, you could say. So I want to invite you right now to consider some of your other larger selves, other larger bodies. We can start with the body of the Sangha. So for those of us who are here on retreat, we've been here a few days now. And it's easy to feel the group as a kind of body. We all have different functions and roles, and as the days play out, these functions choreograph us in our interdependence. The jikidos ring the bell. Other bells guide us through the services. The teachers express their function as they meet with us in interview and help train us in positions. And I could keep elaborating all the innumerable small and large things that we do for each other. Not entirely unlike the cells and organs in a human body. Or we could also say, not entirely unlike an ecosystem. We're also part of a larger body, which is the body of Zen, across its whole history. Hundreds of years of sincere practice and evolving forms, which shape everything we're doing here and now, right up to and including you sitting here, listening to this Dharma talk. And all the learning that we are doing here for, renews that Dharma body. Without us practicing and teaching and learning, the Dharma body would simply die, like any other body, when its cells and organs stopped functioning. And just for a moment, remember the way in which you are part of the body of the whole earth, with its innumerable plants, people, insects, microorganisms, beings of all kinds. All we have to do to feel this is breathe in and breathe out. To quote our study text, breathing in and breathing out, hearing and touching, no thoughts of separation, just the silent illumination of luminosity in which body and mind are not two. Breathing in, we take in the oxygen that was made by the nearby trees or made by plants millions of years ago. That oxygen becomes an intimate part of our personal body. We breathe out carbon dioxide and, surprise, all the plants around us take it gratefully into their bodies. Breathing in and breathing out, hearing and touching, no thoughts of separation. So when we think about our suffering, 
either our personal distress or our collective suffering. The image of the sad T-Rex with the huge body and the tiny arms is actually an inaccurate one. It's a misunderstanding. It's not our own personal arms and hands that can relieve suffering and liberate all sentient beings. I mean, we can do a little, but. We are actually part of unimaginably large bodies with innumerable, uncountable arms and hands throughout the body, hands and eyes. So I want to close with one last phrase that's been echoing in my mind lately. None of us are free until all of us are free. This is one way of stating the bodhisattva vow, but it's also a simple acknowledgement of the reality of what we really are. I think I first encountered this idea in the words of the Kombahi River Collective, a group of black lesbian feminists active in the 1970s. They said, if black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free, since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all systems of oppression. Or we can hear it pithily in the words of the great civil rights activist, Fannie Lou Hammer. Nobody's free until everybody's free. 